This is Rachel Parker. And I'm Danielle. In Convocation With is dedicated to highlighting the journey of Berea College alumni and friends. Follow along as we cultivate a shared collection of stories and chronicle lessons learned about time in the Berea bubble and beyond. And this is In Convocation With. Convocation with. We're so excited to have you today. Well, thank you, Rachel, and uh, thank you, Danielle. Uh, it's it's really, really um, a pleasure to, to see the two of you to, to be having this conversation. Um, I haven't spoken or seen anybody from my alma mater, Berea, in a very, very long time. So, so this is this is great to be talking to you guys. Xu Xia is a policy researcher and former senior Afghan civil servant. He is the author with Professor William Maley of The Decline and Fall of Republican Afghanistan, Oxford University Press, 2023. Xu Xia served as the Director General for International Relations and Regional Cooperation at the Afghan National Security Council, where he helped manage Afghanistan security partnerships. He also served as Director for Peace and Civilian Protection and handled Afghanistan's policy portfolio on international sanctions, including those of the UN Security Council and the U.S. against Taliban, Al-Qaeda, and ISIS. Prior to his civil service work, he was a researcher for Human Rights Watch and served as Director for Development at the American University of Afghanistan, helping to reopen the university after, after the devastating terrorist attack on campus in August 2016. Xuja currently serves as the Head of Policy, Advocacy, and Communications at the Jesuit Refugee Service Australia. He comes to this role after serving as a special advisor to the CEO of the Refugee Council of Australia. He is a Fulbright recipient and has a master's in public policy from Georgetown University. Well, it's great to have you on. And I remember us having a class together my freshman year um, with Dr. Rafai, and it was, I believe it was recent history of the Middle East. And it was a very, very intense class. I think we had either four or six total students in the class. Is that ringing any bells to you? It probably is one of those classes that I took. Uh, it's been 12, 14 <laughs> years, but I know that Dr. Rafai was my thesis advisor. And so I remember each time we had these deadlines by which I had to submit the bibliography, submit the draft of so many chapters and all of that each time i submitted a draft i thought i'd worked really hard on it i you know give it to dr Rafai, he'd read it we'd go to his class and meet with him and he would say i want you to go back to your room or to the library and really think about this topic <laughs> <laughs> and i was like I, I think i've done all of my thinking already on this uh but what dr Rafai really expected was i think us to apply ourselves a little bit more than i apparently did on those topics in those in those papers um but i think 
that that level of expectation that he that he had from students, I think I think was inconvenient for us students at that time. But I think it is good life skill is to apply yourself and to think about it a little bit more. Absolutely. I that was I I think I would venture to say that that was the hardest class I ever took at Berea. And I yeah, it was it was a lot of work and it was really hard. Um, but the life skills that I learned from him, I can definitely say changed my life literally because I wanted to be a political science major. I took that class and I was like, and that's the end of that. <laughs> <laughs> but he was he was very, very good about helping guide me in the direction that was best for me. Um, and I'm so glad that he did. Yeah, those are the two sides of Dr. Fi. Dr. Fi, dream crusher and life shaper. <laughs> <laughs> That's a very good description of him. <laughs> that is. So I remember pronouncing your name as Ahmed in school. Yeah. And I have heard your name pronounced very differently in several different interviews online. And so I would love for you to tell us how you like your name to be pronounced and about any potential name changes that you've since gone by? Yes, yes. No, I, I, I'm glad you asked that question because it confuses a lot of people in my life even today. The, so my two given names were Ahmad Shuja. So you, but, but because up until the time and until after I came to Berea, I didn't really have, quote, a last name. So I actually used Shurja as my last name on all of my documents, and that's what my Berea transcript uses. Um, and this oh. is really sort of an accident of Afghanistan, which didn't really wasn't really big on having family names and last names. Uh, the bureaucratic forms not did not require people to have last names and family names, and, um, and so even even in countries that do have these last names and family names, it is really in 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 some ways a function of how the bureaucracy functions which sort of uh, but also how i think parishes function so the record keeping and everything the genealogies afghanistan didn't have um those structures in place to uh for people to have family names but when i graduated from berea i applied went back to afghanistan i applied for uh, afghanistan introduced digital passports so i applied for a digital passport and they said, what is your family name? And I said, I don't have a family name because these are my two given names. Just use Shudra as my family name. And they said, you can't do that. The law says you have to have a family name. So I, there and then on the spot, I had a family name. Uh, but, uh, uh, but all my life, my friends and family called me Shudra. But when I came to the U.S., people started calling me Ahmad. And because Ahmad Shudra were both my given names, I was okay with that. Until the two worlds started colliding, my family and friends started meeting my college friends, and the two of them talked about the same person using different names, and they started getting confused, and I started saying, just call me Shuja. So that's the story behind all of that. It's a very long story, but uh, call me Shuja from now on. <laughs> we will. Shuja. Yes. Well, and I love that you explained all of that because... I feel like that that does often happen to people, uh, international students specifically, when, um, you know, your story is a little bit different, but uh, oftentimes uh, people in the U.S. are not able to pronounce uh, the name properly. And then 
they end up with kind of like a nickname that they have in the U.S., especially like at Berea College. And so it's really nice to hear what you like to be called and to be able to call you your given name. Thank you. No, I'm glad you asked because I hope this this uh, episode of the, the the podcast is going to help some people understand, at least the people that listen, um, uh, sort of, it's one of those disambiguation articles on Wikipedia <laughs> type <laughs> moments. Well, we're, we're just thrilled and honored to have you on to talk with us today. Now, were you born in Kabul, Afghanistan? That's correct, yes. And so how did it come about that you attended Berea College in Berea, Kentucky, a little hamlet in the United States of America? Well, it's a hamlet that changed a lot of people's lives, including mine. So so it is a small place with a big impact. Um, I, When I was six, my family left Afghanistan in the 1990s because of Taliban 1.0, let's just call it, they were coming to power and it was becoming increasingly difficult. Uh, people, even people who had actually lived through the brutal um, years of uh, armed struggle against the Soviet occupation, even people who had lived through the civil war years that followed after the withdrawal of the Soviets, they couldn't really see themselves staying in Afghanistan under the Taliban anymore. And my family was one of those families. And when I was six, when we left Afghanistan, we went to Quetta, Pakistan, this small town um, in a settlement dominated by other refugees. That's where I had a chance to go to school. That's where I had a chance to learn to speak the English language. And uh, that's where I uh, went to the uh, went to the Internet Cafe for the first time and to, you know, had a, a, an email address for the first time and did a lot of my research on uh, where to study in the U.S. and how to get a scholarship. Um, that's also how I signed up for the SAT, took the SAT tests, applied for multiple colleges and universities, Berea being one of them. Um, I was very, very fortunate that Berea accepted me and gave me a full scholarship, as they give full tuition scholarships to all students admitted. Um, at first, it seemed unbelievable and unreal. And I remember my father asking, you have to really look into it. It doesn't, you know, make sure it's not a scam or anything like that, because it, you know, it, yes, no tuition, room and, no room and board, at least, or nominal room and board for which you can get an on-campus job and pay it off it, it, in, for all four years. Uh, but obviously, fortunately, it was all real. I uh, applied for a visa in those days, even to this day, getting a U.S. visa for many international students is a, a major hurdle um, because of the legal requirements you have to meet. I was extremely fortunate to to receive that um, visa and uh, the rest is history. Well, I'm glad that you and were, were able to attend. I know that that was I'm sure, a wild ride for you because I know I only lived two hours away from college. And I remember thinking like, there's no way this is real. This is a scam. Like I'm going to show up on the first day yeah. and like, I don't know what's going to happen, but it's not going to be good. And so for you to fly like overseas to come here, like what, what a leap of faith. And I'm glad that you took it. Yeah, no, it was, it was remarkable. And because I was so, so excited 
what I did was in that summer between my my um, visa and my time to travel to, to Berea, I thought, well, I'm going to the US and it's going to be American students. They're going to be so, so smart. Why don't you do, you know, why don't you get ready for college in the US? And so I remember reading Rousseau and Nietzsche and all of these philosophers trying to understand as best I could to prepare for, you know, life with American college students who are smart, have, have had the really great educations. And I also remember reading every little page on the berea.edu website uh, because I just couldn't get enough Berea at that time. And that came in very handy when when I came to Berea and I was going to be traveling in, uh, between Kentucky and Georgia, I think, to attend a conference. But I only had a, a three-month visa which had expired. Uh, but my status was still legal because I had this document called the I-20, which still certified me as a full-time student in the U.S. But the security agent, the TSA agent at the Blue Lexington Bluegrass Airport didn't know th that fine detail. All he saw was that he saw an expired visa and an international student named Ahmad trying to travel on a plane. Um, and so I tried to explain it to him that here's my I-20, I'm still legally enrolled, my status is legal. Um, he sort of took me aside, called his supervisor, and they had a chat for a very long time. And I thought, oh my goodness, what is going to happen here? Uh, and so yeah. the, the, the agent came back to me and he said, all right, if you're really a student at Berea College, tell me who's the president of Berea College, Larry Shin at that point. Uh, tell me what's the nearest interstate that passes through the, the universe. I, I didn't drive, but I knew, I thought I knew it was I-75, I-72. Uh, I might have rusted a little bit. Tell me what year was this university, was this college established, 1855. So he quizzed me on whether I knew enough about Berea. And I knew because I'd read all of the web pages on Berea.edu. So that's how I passed the test. And he let me fly on that plane to go to that conference uh, so I think all of that excitement of preparing for college in the U.S. Uh, saved the day that day. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Absolutely. And I think at the time we were in school, there was about 10 percent of the student body that were made up of international students. I wonder mm -hmm. when when you came in freshman year, did Berea have that sense of home or how did you acclimate to Berea, Kentucky? Well, when when I arrived, and I think in those days, the international student cohort arrived about an hour, a week before the rest of the, the uh, class started their orientation. So we had a, a good few days of sort of living in the same dorm, um, eating together and doing all of these activities together. And I think for me, it was extremely eye-opening because I was me meeting students from all over the world. Um, I know it feels like you are an international student, but even for you to meet all of these other students is is really an eye-opening experience. Um, and so by the time that one week was done, all of us, I think, felt that we had made really good friends um, and we had really built relationships in which you could be comfortable and confident. Um, I remember my first uh, first week doing the orientation, my roommate was Cliff. Uh, Clifford and uh, Cliff and I uh, supposed to be in touch. So um, he did, you know, he majored in something else. I majored in something else. But I think uh, that friendship was struck the first day when we were roommates during the orientation period. So that's a long way of saying uh, 
the international student cohort had this week of orientation that really i think helped us connect and make friends and feel like we're we we belong to this to this uh, campus community that's beautiful when the students did arrive like the the rest of the general population do you feel like it was a large culture shock um, it was very different because when you when you were there and the campus is all yours for a whole week, uh, you feel like you you are you know you you belong to this place, and all of a sudden all of these new faces popped up. Uh, it was, I think, somewhat initially I felt a little bit anxious and maybe, um, but but I think as soon as you go to um go to the the go to food service and you see them in class you see them in dorms settling in um, and you start to talk to a few of them i think you realize that they're just about as anxious and nervous as you are because they're just moving into university to to, to college as well uh and i made some really good friends um, of the cohort of american students that came a week later hmm. and you were heavily involved in SGA in your time at Berea, correct? Yes, that's right. I uh, uh, I was involved um, three of my four years, uh, but I was a candidate uh, for an elected office all four years. And so my record is 75% success rate or thereabouts <laughs> uh, at Berea, which is, uh, it is one of those, in my opinion, um, one of those experiences that really shaped my time in college uh, because I had not, um, when, when you grow up as a refugee in a different country, um, Pakistan, which has a democratic constitution, but the constitution has suffered because of coups and because of um, just political instability in general. And I lived through a coup in 1999 when then Army Chief Parvez Musharraf overthrew uh, the then Prime Minister Nawaz Sharif. So, so I had experienced that, uh, never voted in an election, never been a candidate in any election. And here was this campus community that enabled you to run for public office. And I thought, why don't you throw yourself in? And, and, and I did. And I think that really made a lot of difference in how um, I experienced the four years of college, in how I learned and was shaped as a person. Um, so I was, I was very grateful that the students um, voted for us, for me and Cliff in the first two years, and then for me and my other running mates later on. Uh, but it was for me a formative experience. And I remember that's my impression of interacting with you was from SGA my freshman year. And I think, were you president at, at that time? In my last year in 2010, 2011, I was president of SGA. Yes. And I, I just remember like being in meetings with you and thinking just how authentic you were and the empathy and kindness you, you showed me as a freshman. Like I remember interacting with you and just thinking, wow, he is such a leader. And also he cares deeply about these peace and social justice issues that are happening here on campus and around the world. No, thank you, Rachel. I think those were some some very good times in the sense that the students 
uh, for Free Tibet was a movement at its peak, and it had a very strong presence um, on campus. Uh, we had a number of other very strong student-led organizations. I'm, I have no doubt that they still are there. It's just that I don't, uh, you know, see them or experience them very much at the moment. Um, but those were some some very good formative times because it, at least for me as well, it opened my eyes to the whole China-Tibet situation. It opened my eyes to a whole number of other issues, and it becomes easy to care when you know. And I think the student organizations are extremely good at raising awareness about the many issues that continue to this day, I think, uh, affect the lives of people around the world. Did you always know that you wanted to study political science during your time at Berea? Um, initially, I wanted to study journalism when I came to Berea um, because I thought here is a good way for me to raise awareness about the difficulties and problems that people faced in Afghanistan, that the community I belong to, a minority community, had faced for, for many, many years. Uh, but Berea didn't offer a major in journalism at that time. Um, so I switched on, switched to the next best thing, which is political science, and uh, I never looked back. <laughs> I could definitely see you like as a journalist. I... Mm -hmm. You're so inquisitive and I just, I love how you get to the bottom of things and you're, you're looking at the whole picture and that brings me to your book. So tell us a little bit more about your book. Yeah. Thank you for asking about the book. When I, I was in Kabul, Afghanistan on the 15th of August of 2021, when the Taliban uh, violently took over the country, I woke up that morning, put on my um, suit, I took my little briefcase and went to work thinking that this was going to be another day. Um, I worked at the presidential palace uh, in an international relations and regional cooperation role at the National Security Council. It was very clear when I got to, the, to, to my office that this was going to be a day unlike any other because anxiety was palpable in the city, palpable um, within the presidential palace. Um, events transpired really rapidly one after another until um, it was clear that the president had left the country with his helicopters, three of them, and his closest uh, allies and aides. So uh, fast forward a lengthy series of events, you know, lucky decisions um, and, and people being very generous and kind, I was able to leave Afghanistan as the Taliban were coming into the city. And when I was still in quarantine uh, for COVID uh, in Turkey in August of that year, a longtime friend, Professor William Maley of the Australian National University reached out and he said, uh, it, as we were having a conversation, he suggested whether we could uh, author a book together. And it was something that I thought it was a great idea in my view, because here was our opportunity to at least write an initial draft um, of our impressions of this moment in Afghanistan's history. And so we started drafting uh, the book, uh, which became known now as The Decline and Fall of Republican Afghanistan in September of 2021. We finished a manuscript by early March um, and sent it off to the publisher, and it's out in the UK, in the US, and soon in Australia as well. 
Yeah. Well, congratulations. That is such a feat. Um, and to that fast turnaround, I applaud you. Um, and Rachel has read more of the book than I have had the chance to read at this point. Um, but it looks incredible. And just the description is so in depth and good job. Thank you. Thank you, Danielle. It's, it is, it is a very wide ranging book. And, and so it is a wide ranging book in the sense that it talks about uh, the big picture issue, as you mentioned in your earlier question, which is what were some of the early flaws in the constitutional design of Republican Afghanistan in 2001, 2002, that created the fissures that resulted in the political instability that uh, reverberated throughout the whole 20 years of uh, at least my adult life. Uh, Republican Afghanistan and my adult life, my professional life, my educational life, you know, they coincide uh, in many ways. And, and they do the same thing with, with millions of other people from Afghanistan. But we also look at factors that are external to Afghanistan, aid dependency, for example. We also look at factors that are internal to Afghanistan, um, the crisis of political leadership at key moments. Um, but, you know, many countries around the world today we see are um, politically divided, they're dependent on foreign aid, they have instability and insurgencies, they also have troubled elections. But they they may be what you call declining states, but they can continue in that state of decline for many years, including many decades, in fact. But rarely do you see a country beset with those kinds of challenges fall so dramatically and so quickly. And so our book tries to tackle that particular question of what happened that led to the fall of Republican Afghanistan. And um, there's a, there are particular chapters dedicated to American diplomatic misadventures, in my view, and, and we have uh, plenty of analysis about, about that, but also the final days of Kabul, which is the last couple of years, and what were the Afghan military leadership and political leadership doing as the country was crumbling around them, and what they were not doing. And what was the role of our neighbors, Pakistan, the role of our uh, strategic partners, the United States, and all of this. So there is a big picture look of constitutional design, uh, political legitimacy, and dependency, but also a smaller picture look at the tactical decisions in the months and years in the lead up to the fall of Afghanistan. Hmm. And, and like Daniel said, I did just start reading, it came out this week, the decline and fall of Republican Afghanistan was just released to the U.S. market this week. Is that correct? Good. That's correct. The first of May. <laughs> and I, I have read through the second chapter and I wanted to honor your process in the book, but I was very tempted to go to the end there is an afterword called On Betrayal, and you, you set it up so it, it's enticing from the jump of the first chapter where you say this isn't going to be a chronological account. It is going to be led by events and how they unravel. And it, it's just such an interesting concept as a writer to see a book that is academic and objective from someone who has this insight, this deeply personal insight to what happened on that day and the days leading up and after. I wanna hop in here just because we do have about seven minutes left. Could you kind of walk us through 
from your time at Berea, how did you get to where you are now? And what are you doing right now besides your fantastic book that just came out? Thank you, Danielle. Um, I graduated from Berea. I was offered a job to be the executive director of an organization at that point called the Foundation for Afghanistan in Washington, D.C. That's where I worked for approximately two years and then went back to Afghanistan and decided to stay in Afghanistan, um, where I worked for Human Rights Watch as, as in, in a research and advocacy capacity for the next four years. My job was to do some research into the human rights violations done by the Taliban at that point, US and NATO forces, Afghan forces. If there was an actor and they violated human rights, we tried to look into it. Um, after four years of working with Human Rights Watch, I was invited to join the American University of Afghanistan. The American University of Afghanistan at that point had just suffered a terrorist attack on campus by the Taliban which had led to the death of a professor, uh, uh, five students and two staff members, if I remember the, those uh, numbers correctly. And so the, the, instead of giving up and closing down, the university was, was defiant and the university wanted to repair the damage that had been caused, not just physical, but also emotional and mental psychological to students. Many students at that point were still undergoing multiple surgeries for the wounds that they'd, they'd um, um, sustained. And they invited me to come join the university in to help in the process of reopening that university. So for the next eight months, I was at the American University of Afghanistan working on the reopening process. I stayed through to when the university opened, the first class of 2017 graduated. And then I uh, was offered a Fulbright, uh, which brought me back to the United States at Georgetown University. Uh, I was in the U.S. for about two years and decided to go back to Afghanistan and start a career as a civil servant. Uh, initially, I was the director for peace and reconciliation. At that point in 2019, Afghanistan was sort of at the crossroads of a potential peace process, peace talks with the then insurgent Taliban group. So I was going to be part of that process in a, in a civil service capacity. Uh, that job changed later to the Director General for International Relations and Regional Cooperation um, until the very last day of Republican Afghanistan. Mm. Wow. I love that your story is evolving. Like it, it has a lot of moving parts in the... 12, 12 years since the time that you graduated. And I think that that's so cool to show students that are currently in their programs now that it's not just you get a job and you stay in that job till you retire at 65. Um, it, your career is evolving. And just because one door might close or your time feels like it's come to an end internally, um, another door or window will open, whatever the phrase is uh, for that. But I, I love that your story has a lot of different pieces to it. Well, thank you. I think that's a remarkable insight because when you are a college student just about ready to graduate, everything can seem very important and momentous. Did you get a B minus on a particular grade in the midterm? 
that can really switch you off for a whole week. And I think it is important to care about those things. But I think the bigger picture of life is that it, it evolves, it goes on, and it's important to keep that in mind. Is your first job out of college not coming up quickly enough? I applied to 85 places and got all of those rejections until I got a job. Uh, and I think it is very likely that you will experience a similar level of jobs not responding, you know, jobs, you know, rejecting and, and not giving you those jobs. It's it's part of the process. And I think uh, it can be intimidating. It can be anxiety provoking. But at the end of the day, I think it evolves and, and you'll change. And this whole idea of one door closing and another opening has been my entire life. Refugee, the Berea door opened. Uh, when I went to Berea in 20, 2007, um, my family was, was poor. But when I had a, a US education and I went back to Afghanistan, I went back as a middle-class person, able to afford a 50 Afghani cup of coffee and another one and a third one, uh, which had not been the case before I went to, when I went to Berea. So I think life um, will take you places that you can't even imagine or even plan. Uh, so it's important to keep the bigger picture in mind, even as you care for your B minus in the midterm. <laughs> you are absolutely right. So what what's going on in your world right now? What's next on the horizon with the publishing of your book, with your role living in Australia? What's next? Well, um, I live in Melbourne with my wife. Uh, we have an extra bedroom if there's a Berean who wants to visit Australia. Uh, it's a fantastic country, beautiful place. You're welcome to crash in our place. Uh, but I work as the head of policy, advocacy and communications at Jesuit Refugee Service Australia. Um, I'm also on the advisory committee of the University of New South Wales uh, Caldor Centre for International Refugee Law, which is effectively a think tank that works on climate-related displacement, refugee issues, and asylum, people seeking asylum issues. Um, but that's work. Work will evolve and change, but we'll be in Melbourne, and we'll always be welcoming to a Berean or two or three who wants to visit us in Australia. I absolutely love that. And I know Rachel's raising her hand over there. She's like, <laughs> take me to Melbourne, and I'm ready. Okay. I, Ahmad, we are, or, I'm sorry, not Ahmad. That is hard to make that change, Suja. Uh, it has been so phenomenal to have you on today. Rachel and I have actually had your name on our list uh, since the beginning of our podcast, and we were so nervous to ask you. So thank you for saying yes to coming on today. That's very kind of you. Thank you very much. It has been a, a genuine pleasure to speak to you. To joining us until next time blue crew walks on chestnut <laughs> <laughs>